welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Dear Father in heaven, minister your word to us as encouragement, uh, as conviction, as uh, converting power in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a very interesting panel discussion for a Sabbath afternoon for a church that's interested. Why are so many youth drifting away from the church? Well, one church had a discussion on that topic. It was really a lively one, and there were many parents as well as young people that were there 
who had something to say. And first of all, everyone uh, pretty much agreed that there is a problem, that a large percentage of our youth walk out the back door when they come to their late teens. Something else they agreed on was that they had done some research in the various surveys that church leaders had done, and the experts analyzed that there is a loss of about 45 to 50 percent of our young people, which means simply and starkly that of all of the children who come down in front here for the children's story on Sabbath morning, we will visibly lose roughly half of them in 10 years. That's a very sober thought. Unless some blessing comes that hasn't yet. Third, various reasons were explored for this appalling loss, and most suggested, well, it had to do with problems in the home. Too much worldliness there, too much television, too much... uh, Materialism, in other words, uh, fun shopping in the mall, uh, no family worship, no uh, study of the Sabbath school lesson, uh, parents disinterested, maybe sending more children to church schools, maybe sending more children to academies or high schools and colleges and our universities, maybe that could help. This was suggested. But some of the scientific surveys indicated that spiritual boredom or confusion can set in at these schools, uh, especially at the more affluent ones. And then the the panel discussion in this one particular church ended up uh, by asking the question, well, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Why does lax home training or unspiritual uh, school education seem to be so ineffective in holding our youth? Why? And no one seemed to connect what Jesus says in the message uh, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans with this heart-rending problem. The lack of spiritual guidance in the home and even in the schools is due, according to Jesus, in the Laodicean message, he says, to the spiritual lukewarmness, first of all, that exists in the church itself. In Revelation 3, verses 14 through 21, the synopsis reads, Thou knowest not that thou art poor and blind, in the one essential understanding and proclaiming the pure gospel of justification by faith and God's love. So the truth about the gospel is anything but boring, It engages the hearts of our young people. It captivates them. If the cross of Jesus, if the love of God for them is uplifted, that captures the imagination of our young people. But old covenant versions of it leave human hearts, both young and old, flat out cold. And so the conclusion is to plead with God to give you a hunger and a thirst for the new covenant and for the cross of Jesus and for his love so that you can communicate some good news to our children and to our youth. You know, the nation is absorbed in hand-wringing over the plight of children and our youth who are watching thousands of bloody murders on the television screen and in the movie screen and for whom murder in cold blood is glamorized thereby. You know, the young people of this nation are being desensitized, aren't they? 
of natural affection that is being driven out of their souls. And not many as yet have thrown bombs and shot bullets at us, but satanic hatred seems to be uh, manifested in the breasts of the young people of our country. And all they need is some automatic weapon in their hands to let it lash out in their hatred. What can be done to help? Is the anguished cry echoed in newspapers and magazines around the country? What can we do to reach the hearts of our young people of this nation? Should we show them more violence? Absolutely no. But, you know, the Bible does startle us with a suggestion. Yes, it does. The most ultimate violence that has ever been perpetrated was, and the murder of murders was that of the murder of the Son of God. And the Bible tells us that our children and that our youth need to see it. They need to see it. It wasn't merely putting a man to sleep as bombs and bullets do. It sent Jesus literally to the second death. And Jesus says that that story must be told. Jesus tells us that the story of his violent death must be told to the youth and to the young people. He says it in these words in John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And this he said, signifying what death he should die. So the apostles everywhere proclaimed Christ and him crucified. They spared nothing in telling the gruesome details. They gloried in the story, not because it glamorized violence, but because it is the only cure for violence, and especially for young people. It was a torture that was more cruel than what suicide bombers inflict on their victims. But it was not mere human sadism that drove the scribes and the Pharisees to demand of Pilate crucify him. They were obsessed with this mysterious hatred of God himself, the roots of which linger in the dark shadows of every human heart. It was not only deicide, it was the dark desire to blot God and his righteousness out of the universe. The murderers of Jesus were Satan-possessed, and, and they held up in front of us a mirror that we could all look at and see ourselves. See ourselves. What we would be, what we would do if we had been in their place, but for the grace of God. But how can telling the story of the cross, how can that help the violence-saturated children and the youth of our 21st century? God resurrected him, and he judged his murderers, and the world was judged them likewise. It's the story of the murder of all murders because it follows the plot through to its end, which no ordinary human murder ever can do. It won't help hardened criminals, someone objects, 
Don't be too sure that old, old story properly told is the only hope that this dark world has. It is the only hope that our youth and our children have, and they need to hear the story of Jesus' death, and they need to hear it soon to captivate their hearts. What can give young people an experience that will capture their heart appreciation to Christ? What can keep them faithful in today's seductive allurements, even through the trials, in the ultimate test of the mark of the beast crisis? For sure, deception has never been more subtle and enticing than it is today. Deception is out to grip the minds of our young people, to keep them off the real issues. But the Bible tells us But where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. That's in Romans 5.20. And there's one thoughtful writer, Ellen White, who says this in Christ Triumphant. God has enriched the world in these last days proportionately with the increase of ungodliness if his people will only lay hold of his priceless gift. What she's saying is that, yes, sin in this world is is exponentially increasing, but grace is hundreds of times more powerful than it. And what is that priceless gift? It is an increased enrichment of his grace that is greater than the increased ungodliness that thoughtful people deplore. And youth will not respond to increased fear-laden propaganda. Young people do not respond to fear anymore. In other words, we cannot go to them and say, if you don't get your life in order, you're going to hell. Now, the reason why we can't appeal to their fear anymore is that they're not afraid of anything. In fact, they're entertained by fear. Fear for them is entertainment. That's why they watch the television screen. That's why they watch the movies. That's why they listen to the music that glorifies violence. Because they're not afraid of fear anymore. It is entertainment. So let's stop giving them the gospel of fear. Let's give them the gospel of God's love, which can only grip uh, grip the heart in appreciation for him. You know, spouting hellfire and brimstone sermons may frighten them temporarily, but they will soon relapse into their usual spiritual complacency. It's only a message of grace that gets enthroned in young people's hearts. And thank God his Holy Spirit is indeed working to enrich the world with a message of much more abounding grace that is more than complementary to the devil's abounding sin message in the world today. You know, youth are bombarded especially toward the end of the year with these Christmas carols, but few are encouraged to stop and think about what the angel said to the shepherds there at Bethlehem. Don't be afraid, the angel said. I'm here with good news for you, which will bring great joy to all of the people. And those parents and those teachers and pastors who have a heart burden to help youth must ponder that message Fear is not the motivation that will work. The shepherds were terribly afraid, says Luke. But the angel said that fear is not what I want to awaken in your hearts.
I want you to appreciate how good the good news is which I bring to you. And children and youth need massive injections of the news of that grace. And don't be afraid that news about grace will encourage them in sin. Nothing else can motivate anyone to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts than presenting to them the love of God and Christ's sacrifice for them. The news told of a little girl by the name of Paige in the Northwest who was suffering from an incurable leukemia, and her parents were afraid that she wouldn't last till the end of the year. Uh, And that time of the year was the happiest for her. Uh, She couldn't think of anything better than the holiday season, and so the parents got the fire department to create artificial snow for her front yard, and they covered the bushes with the snow. It was Christmas in July, and the grass was covered, and they even put the reindeer out on the front lawn, and they brought in a Christmas tree, everything to make the illusion that it was Christmas in July for her to enjoy before she died. But it's a pity that little Paige couldn't have been at an Adventist school graduation when the majority of the children voted to say that if they had their choice of having either Christmas week or the Adventist school, and they couldn't have both, that they would choose the Adventist school. The children's hearts were touched by the realities of the gospel. In fact, children's hearts are more reachable than the hearts of adults. If the heart is reached in childhood, there's good reason to believe that the entire life will be totally dedicated to Christ. There won't be backslidings, and there won't be wasted years that are spent on drug use and immorality and no wild teenage rebellions, and then repenting at last by giving the Lord Jesus the last dregs of their ruined lives. But how can the children's hearts be reached? Is Babylon's gospel going to do it? Certainly not for our children. Christ must be presented to them not as a heavenly Santa Claus who satisfies their self-centered desires even when they are spiritual, but Christ is presented as a Savior who is one with them, who took their nature as one in whom they can sense an identity and thus experience it with him. Not for themselves only. They are thinking of Jesus and not themselves. Their sympathy is with him. And that's what happens when the true preaching of the cross occurs. One sympathizes with Jesus and no longer thinks of themselves. If the truth of the gospel is revealed to them, they will share the Savior's heart burden. They will feel with him. They will never forget that experience. Children's hearts can be knit with the heart of Christ, but it doesn't happen when the self-centered motivation is uppermost. Even an ounce of old covenant legalism can neutralize our so-called gospel ministry for our children and our youth. And then we cry our eyes out and we wonder why they left the church when we did so much for them. We need to connect them to the cross of Christ and his great heart of love for them. You know, young people can hardly imagine that they will ever get old, much less die. They feel immortal, don't they? And they are by nature sinners like everybody else, and they feel like their life belongs to them, and 
so they are naturally selfish, like all of us are, but they may be deliriously happy in their selfishness as long as things go their way. Thoughts of self-sacrifice, of giving their lives in God's service, all of that is unwelcome. But there must come a time when that delirious exuberance is all spent out, and then the misery of feeble old age takes over. And if you haven't learned in your youth how to surrender your own will to God, in the same way that Jesus surrendered his own will to his Father, then you find it a very difficult lesson to learn later on in life, and you are bitterly unhappy. And that's why Solomon quite wisely said, Remember your Creator while you are still young, before those dismal days of years come, when you will say, I don't enjoy life. And that's when the light of the sun and the moon and the stars will grow dim for you. And then your arms will tremble and your legs, now strong, will grow weak. And your eyes, too dim to see clearly. And you will barely be able to hear music as it plays. But even the song of a bird will wake you from sleep you will hardly be able to drag yourself along and all desire be gone. Well, I know Solomon could be dismal at times in his writing, but he was describing life without the love of God in it, you see. You get old, you get cynical, you're ready to hang it up. But with Jesus, you're never that way. You never want to retire. There's good news burning in the heart, isn't there? If you're young and you rejoice in thy youth, but know that God will bring thee into judgment, be sober and learn the lesson of the cross and make a conscious choice to let self be crucified with Jesus and pray his prayer, not as I will, but thy will be done. And if you are old and you realize that you have never truly prayed that prayer, thank God for every moment of consciousness, yet that is granted to you, when you wake up in the morning, say, not my will, but thy will be done. Thank you for this day so I can say those words to you. We've all heard about the story of the town where there was a cliff overhanging it, and people would often fall off over the cliff, and they would fall below, and they would be wounded. And so the good townspeople were caring people, and they built a hospital, And they sent an ambulance to pick up those hapless people who fell off the cliff. And this went on for a long time until somebody thought of a better idea. Why don't we build a fence at the top of the cliff to keep people from falling over? And so at prayer meeting, there was the faithful, caring church members who were praying for the young people who used to attend church in Sabbath school who have now given up church and are out in the world. And they used to attend Sabbath school, and they came through the church school and through the church academy. And some reliable estimates say that 50% of such children turn away from the church by the time they are 18. And parents weep their eyes out. And every effort is made to send a spiritual ambulance 
to bring in these casualties that have jumped off the fence. But why not build a fence at the top of the cliff in the church? Why not give these children and youth the pure gospel? Give them the genuine good news. The Apostle Paul guarantees that it will work. It is the power of God unto salvation, he says. And what is the good news? Most of the time when these sad tragedies take place, the root cause for it is legalism. And what is legalism in contrast to the gospel? Well, wherever you find the teaching that salvation is due to man's initiative and man's works, then you are in the atmosphere of legalism. And when you find the teaching that our salvation is started by God and is his work, then you are in the atmosphere of the genuine gospel. Now, if you have to initiate your salvation, that leaves the human heart cold, discouraged, in spiritual despair. But if you understand that God has initiated your salvation, it captivates the heart. It holds the affections. It motivates the faithfulness to God because it is the essence of the atonement, which is reconciliation to God through the blood of the Lamb of God. Let's give somebody the gospel today, and especially our young people, shall we? Almost everywhere I go, I meet parents who tell me sadly that one or more of their children are no longer in the church They were raised in the church, they went to Sabbath school, even church school, Christian academies, but now they've drifted out into the world. And these parents invariably tell me that they are trusting to that promise in Isaiah 49, verse 25, that says, I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. That is a precious promise. But is there something that we can do to cooperate with the Lord in this wonderful work of reclaiming lost children. I remind you of the father of the prodigal son. He was a wonderful man, wasn't he, the prodigal son's father? But still, what happened? His son rebelled. His son rebelled. And so we're not assured of 100% success necessarily. Even Jesus lost one of his 12 disciples and actually almost lost Peter. And the others forsook him and fled before the cross. But there is a reason why we lose so many people and the problem can be corrected. The problem is the same one that ancient Israel had continually and it's the effects of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was the promise of the people to do everything just right when they promised in Exodus 19 verse 8, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. For generations, we've always assured our children, yes, the Lord will bless you. He will do this or that for you, provided you do your part. You obey. And thus the basic idea that gets across to them is that the Lord is like a CHP officer. He won't bother you if you keep out of trouble, but it's up to you to initiate a relationship with the Lord and to maintain it. And if you don't, then he will back off and he will leave you to yourself. The emphasis is on what you do 
to yourself, to save yourself, not on what he has done and is doing to save you. And what is the inevitable result? Dependence on self. And that leads to alienation from God. And then it leads to wandering and drifting away from God and his church. Well, let's hope it's not too late to proclaim the new covenant to the children who have lost their way. But in the meantime, let's give the new covenant to the children today. Let's give it to them. They must know that Christ is their Savior 100%. Nothing but that good news will reconcile their alienated hearts to him. Let's ask two serious questions now in closing. Does God merely offer his friendship to you, or has he given his friendship to you? There is a difference between those two ideas. Just look again. If God offers his friendship, then he is standing aloof from you, withholding his actual friendship until you do something right, until you take the initiative and activate it, and then you do the right thing, and forever afterwards you congratulate yourself for what you have done. In other words, it is a faith plus works journey. But if God has already given you his friendship, and we believe this is the case, amen, that is the truth, then you finally realize that God has been your friend all along. And you've been too stubborn. You've been too blind to receive it. And then forever afterwards, your heart is melted in a spiritual humility. And it inevitably, uh, you know, if, if the truth is B, Yes, it melts the heart. It does. It leads to an attitude of repentance and reconciliation with Christ. Now, as to which is true, does the Bible give an answer? If God has offered you a friendship, is that what the Bible calls the Old Covenant? Yes, it is. And you, can, you can quote Old Covenant ideas in the Bible. Galatians chapter 4, verse 24 says, that old covenant thinking leads to bondage. That means it leads to dependence on yourself, and I'll tell you that is a sold into slavery thing. The old covenant version of the gospel produces the Laodicean spiritual condition, but the new covenant that God has given you already his friendship, that is the truth. The truth is expressed in those words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's not an offer. That is a gift to every soul on this world. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish. Jesus said in John 6.51, listen to this carefully, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The life of the world is Jesus, the bread of life. That's why we're living and breathing right now. That's why people are driving up and down the freeway out here right now, and they don't even know it, because Jesus is the bread of life. I would say that Jesus has already given himself as a friend 
to everyone on this earth, according to these texts. And the Samaritans got the point. Jesus was not merely offering to be the savior of the world. They said he is the savior of the world. John 4, verse 42. And Paul got the point, for he said that the living God is the savior of all men. In 1 Timothy 4.10, he's not merely offering to be the savior of all men. And Isaiah saw the reason why this is true. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's already died the second death. He's tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2, verse 9. So now it's time. It's time to humble your heart, to believe to appreciate what he has already done for you. And that kind of faith is going to change your life. It will radically change your life. I think of uh, Abraham and his grand final victory. It's true that Abraham, I'm talking about Abraham in Genesis, failed miserably in his unbelief. So did Sarah. You see, they were one flesh, and so they both failed in unbelief. They were one. They fell into the trap of the old covenant. And while God had given them the new covenant promise of having a child of promise, Isaac, they disbelieved God's promise, and they assumed that they must work it out for themselves and to help fulfill it. Hence, you get Hagar and Ishmael in the picture, And Paul says that they are the old covenant in Galatians 4. And finally, after decades of heart bitterness, even while they were having daily family worship and they were doing their Sabbath keeping, Sarah allowed her unbelieving heart to be melted in repentance. And you can let the gynecologists argue it out, but her new and her different feelings about God made it possible for her to get pregnant. And by faith, Sarah received strength to conceive, we read. All this time, they were one flesh. And so Abraham shared the repentance with her. And Isaac came, well-named, laughter, grew to be the most delightful teen, the joy of their hearts. And then, the bomb. When Abraham was old and weak, the same voice of God that had made the promises now told him to offer the beloved son as a sacrifice on a hill to be known later as Calvary. And the years of bonding that had gone on further than if he had been told to do this when Abraham was a baby Isaac was a young man, and the father's soul was knit with him, so it made the decision all the more difficult. And Sarah, she just couldn't have took it. The father aroused Isaac, left without telling Sarah goodbye. They went on a three-day trip, the longest, the most saddest that Abraham had ever taken. But when puzzled, Isaac quizzed his father, He expressed no old covenant despair, as we would probably do. Instead, Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. 
that was a shining tribute to Christian education. Young people's hearts can be educated to the principle of the cross. It can captivate their hearts. And Isaac joined in the willingness of the sacrifice. He had learned to believe the new covenant promises through his father's lips and teaching. And I want you to know that Abraham didn't actually kill Isaac with his knife, but he did make the full commitment to the sacrifice. We read in Genesis, God said to him, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me, said God. And it reflected Christ's cross. Our Father in heaven did not withhold his son, his only son, in giving it him to the world. It reflected Christ's cross. Christ didn't go into the literal lake of fire, but he made the full commitment, and thus he died the equivalent of the second death. Let's say thank you. There is a principle to which God himself submits over and above the principle of the truth about God. God submits himself to the cross. Any religion that detours around the cross is a religion of self-centeredness. The way of the cross leads home. That's why Abraham earned the title rightly, the friend of God. To the degree that I, to the degree that you, learn the principle of the cross, to that degree, God will call us friends. Because our heart will resonate with his heart. The one thing that is supreme in God's heart is the cross. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.